0: Welcome to Beaver Tracks, a damn good podcast, bringing you inside the world of OSU admissions and providing you with a behind the scenes look at what goes on in Beaver Nation. I'm Heather Wilford, the Senior System Director of Multicultural Recruitment.
1: And I'm Amanda Price, Assistant Director of Resident Recruitment. Thanks for tuning in. Heather, seasons are changing. It's getting colder outside. Do you like the cold? What do you think?
0: You know, Amanda, I actually don't mind the cold weather. You know, I grew up in Montana, so I'm used to it. It's in my blood, uh, you know, getting used to that cold weather. But I do miss summer. I feel like it went by way too fast this year.
1: It really did. You've known me for a couple years now, and I despise the cold. I could never live in a place like Antarctica.
0: Well, you know, right now, Antarctica is actually moving into its summer. So, I mean, it's probably still not sunbathing weather there, but maybe you could still summer in Antarctica instead of wintering in Corvallis.
1: Hmm, That's a good idea. Well, I do know someone who doesn't mind Antarctica at all. It is today's guest, Kim Bernard. She is an OSU professor and researcher. Kim earned her bachelor's of science, master's, and PhD from the Rhodes University in South Africa. She teaches polar oceanography at Oregon State and has ventured to Antarctica so many times, it's almost her second home. She studies marine life in Antarctica, focusing on Antarctic krill, in an effort to understand how these important critters will cope in a changing ocean. Welcome, Kim. Hi,
2: it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So Kim, first question. On those cold Antarctic winter days, what coffee spot are you dreaming about most at OSU to get warmed up and get that that hot cup of Java?
2: Well, the place that I really love to go, it's, it's not on campus. It's just up the road. It's called Susan's Garden and Coffee Shop. And I just love it out there because you're surrounded by plants and it's just so peaceful.
1: I love coffee and I have never heard of that place before. So Heather and I will definitely need to go check it out, even though she doesn't drink coffee.
0: True. I'm there. It sounds super cool. And I love finding new places in Corvallis.
1: So next question. Your research focus is in the area of polar zooplankton ecology. We're new to the world of zooplankton. Can you give us a quick lesson about it?
2: Yeah, sure. So zooplankton are basically small animals that live in the ocean and drift around on the currents. They also include things like jellyfish. So while I just said that they're small, they can get really big. There are some jellyfish that are about six feet across. And zooplankton are really important in ocean ecosystems because they're food for bigger organisms like whales and fish and seals and seabirds. They also help to keep the cycling of carbon and nitrogen going.
0: A large squid sounds terrifying to me. I hope I never come across one in a A, large, A large
2: jellyfish. A large jellyfish, that's right, jellyfish, okay. A large large squid squid sounds also terrifying. Yes, it
0: does. Well, Kim, as you may have noticed in our introduction, we're kind of a fan of like corny jokes and intros. And we also love puns and noticed mm-hmm. that your website address for your zooplankton Ecology Lab is called krillseekerlab.com and your Twitter handle is psycho underscore kriller. You are all about the krill. <laughs> you are krilling it with the puns,
1: Kim. Nice. I love that. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> we're yeah. ready to join your your pun team. <laughs> great. You guys are welcome. It seems though, even though they're very small, they play a valuable role in the ocean ecosystem. So why is it important to study them and how did you become interested in krill research? Those are really
2: great questions um, because I I really do love krill. I am all about the krill. Um, They're incredibly important in in ocean food webs. So I said that zooplankton are important, but of the zooplankton, krill are probably the most important, I would say. They're incredibly nutritious, full of lots of good proteins and fats that are now uh, fish and whales that feed on them to grow and be healthy. Um, so I first became interested in krill when I was doing my postdoc. And um, I did this across the coast in Virginia. Um, and I was researching the role that different zooplankton, which includes krill, play in the Antarctic food web. And of all the zooplankton that I was actually studying, krill were the most charismatic and they really just captured my heart. They are also pretty hardy, um, unlike some other zooplankton that tend to die quite easily when you catch them and try to study them. So this means that you can do some really cool experiments with them. And last year in Antarctica, we actually kept about 4,000 krill alive in large tanks for four months. We fed them regularly, and we studied their physiology. Um, And I could just spend ages every day just watching them swimming around in those tanks. They're just just—they're the coolest.
1: That's great. It's interesting to think of Krill as having a personality.
2: I love that. Charismatic <laughs> they, Krill. They totally have personalities. I'm convinced That's
1: of it. That's awesome. Did you ever name any of them? <laughs> There's thousands.
2: Well, actually, um, our, the undergrad who came with us, Julia, she named one of them, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name she chose, but yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm just throwing it out there for the next batch. Heather and Amanda seem like great names <laughs> for future krill. Nice. Well, we'll be there next year. so yep. We definitely have charismatic personalities,
1: so there you go. <laughs> you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you have been to Antarctica a few times. What is it like to travel from Oregon all the way to Palmer Station? And can you tell us what your impression of the icy world was the first time you arrived?
2: Um, I've actually spent over two and a half years at Palmer in total, which is... Kind of crazy to think about. So I really have been there quite a few times now. And traveling to Palmer Station from Oregon involves a number of different different legs. So first we fly from PDX, Portland, south to Santiago, which is the capital of Chile. Then we fly even further south to Punta Arenas, which is down in Patagonia. Um, and then from there we board a research vessel called the Lawrence M. Gould, which we abbreviate to LMG. Uh, and then we travel further south across the Drake Passage. Um, and down to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is where Palmer Station is located. Now, that leg of the journey takes at least four days, but it can be longer if the weather is bad, Um, and the Drake Passage is notorious for bad weather, so that often happens. But once we cross the Drake Passage and we start getting our first sights of Antarctica, it's just, you know, no matter what seasickness you had on the way across, it just makes it all so worth it. The coastline of the Antarctic Peninsula is just simply stunning with massive jagged rocks coming straight up out of the ocean and they're covered in snow and ice. The sea around in, in that sort of region in the bays and straits is super calm and often glassy. It's also at this point that we might start seeing icebergs and sea ice. And of course we're also seeing lots of penguins and seals and whales and they're all there feeding on the krill. And when we arrive at Palmer Station, I just, it's this magical moment of a sense of feeling like I'm coming home and also just like, (laughs) I always get emotional talking about this, but I just have this immense gratitude for having the opportunity
0: to be there.
1: It sounds otherworldly. It really does. (laughs) It
0: It is. That's a really good description. You've, you've been down there a number of times, and like you mentioned, in mm-hmm. one of those expeditions was part of an all-women's team, mm-hmm. and uh, we're so excited to see more and more women breaking into STEM fields every day, and we love talking with prospective students who are, are interested in getting involved in that. So what advice do you have for women who still may be one of the only few in their science classes? Yeah, that's, I, I'm
2: so glad that you asked us and mentioned it, and it was, I just want to say, it was truly awesome being part of an all-women team. I also want to like recognize and note that STEM is made stronger with diverse voices, diverse approaches to addressing research questions and diverse takes of life. And we really need more diversity in STEM, right? And, and it just, it meant so much to me to lead such a dynamic, dynamite team. Um, and so my advice, and this is for women, but also for students from different minority groups. So, you know, not, not just women, but minority groups in general, if you have a goal that you're passionate about, don't let anyone tell you that you can't achieve that goal. They don't know you, and they don't know what you're capable of. There are challenges, yes, and some people try to pull you down, but don't let that define you. I, even along my path, I've had people tell me that I wasn't gonna be successful, and it pretty much became my mission to prove them wrong. So that is my, that's my advice.
0: I think you've been successful in proving them wrong.
1: <laughs> very, very
0: accomplished. Very incredible.
1: Thank yeah, you. I would agree. So in addition to that, many people think the only time you can get involved in research is once you are in graduate school, but you have undergraduates assisting in labs too. What do you think is the most beneficial skill that students gain when they get involved in research early in their college career?
2: Yeah. And so I already mentioned, but one of my field team members last year was an undergrad too, and she actually graduated at Palmer Station, which is, I don't know if anyone who's done that. So yes, undergrads can and should definitely get involved in research. Gaining research experience as an undergrad has so many benefits. And these range from just specific technical skills that could put you ahead of the game when applying for grad school, but all the way to increased confidence in your own scientific research and communication abilities. When you work in a lab uh, during your undergrad and as an undergrad, you become part of a larger team. And this, this enhances your support network, which can be really beneficial from both a social aspect and also professional career development aspect.
1: Absolutely. That's very, very true, I think, for any discipline, for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, not all students might be able to do research at Antarctica, um, which Mm -hmm. is pretty incredible. But, you know, we know that a lot of the students who are in the College of Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric Sciences, they do some type of experiential learning before they graduate. Can you give us an example of maybe an excursion or research project that they do that maybe is a little bit more local to Oregon State?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. So, so our college um, at COS really values experiential learning, as you mentioned, and providing research opportunities in the field is something we do really well. Um, at the moment, we offer a class called Introduction to Field Oceanography, and this includes a five-day research cruise aboard the Oceanus, which is OSU's research vessel, and soon will be conducted aboard COS's newest vessel, the Tani. Um, other classes that we offer also include trips up the Aquino Estuary in Newport, and there are a number of faculty in COS who take undergrads into the field as research assistants like I did.
1: Well, if our listeners are interested in studying the ocean, coasts, and environments and getting involved in this type of research, you can actually go online for more information to ceos, C-E-O-A-S dot dot E-D-U and check out all the programs and research opportunities that we've talked about today and so much more.
0: So before we wrap up, Kim, um, we have one final question before you leave, and hoping that you can help settle a polar debate for us: which was more exciting to see in the wild, penguins or whales, when you were in Antarctica?
2: You know, I must say it's the whales. <laughs> Growing up in South Africa, I'd seen well—I mean, I'd seen whales as well, but I'd also seen penguins. It it always like it, it always tickles me when I when I go to Antarctica with Americans because they get. I think more excited about seeing the penguins. But for me, you know, I had the most magical experience um, down there with two humpback whales once. And can I I tell you about it? Absolutely. Um, So I was out, uh, it was several, quite a few years ago, one of my earlier field seasons down there. And I was out in a small Zodiac. It's one of those inflatable rubber boats. That's what we used to do the research off the the coast there. And, And it was just me and my field assistant and we'd been sampling for zooplankton or for krill. We'd been, you know, putting up nets and trying to catch krill. Um, and, and we were just taking a little lunch break. So we turned off the engine and, and we were just eating our lunch. And these two humpback whales were after the same krill that we were after. And they came, they were just really curious about us. And they came right up to the Zodiac. And it was, it was so incredible. They took turns basically one at a time. They came, they, they swam underneath the Zodiac really, really close, like maybe two feet underneath it, if that, on their sides with their one, you know, one eyeball looking up. And so as they came out from the underside of the, of the Zodiac, I just, I was leaning over and I just saw this massive eyeball looking up at me. And, and then, you know, it swam wolf, And then the other one did the exact same thing. There's nothing that could top that, really, for me. What were you guys going to guess?
0: I, I
1: think we're Americans, so mine was going to be penguins, <laughs> for
0: sure. Yes. <laughs> Although, Amanda knows that. I get really excited when I see whales on the coast and have, you mm-hmm. so, know, so maybe. But yeah, I agree. Penguins just are so goofy and, and silly to they me. They are. They're, they're pretty amazing, I must say. They're quite hilarious.
1: You're so excited about them coming up to your ship. I would be terrified. I was <laughs> like right underneath.
2: <laughs> I was a little bit. I was like, well, don't just don't come up too too fast because you might knock us over. Um, but yeah.
1: Yeah, that would be cold.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes.
1: Kim, thanks so much for joining us today and for settling that debate about penguins or whales. That's a wrap for this episode. Join us next time to hear more about what's happening in Beaver Nation. It will be a damn good time. Kim, can we get a go beeves from you to end us? <laughs> yeah. Go beaves. That's
0: right, go beeves.
1: Go beavers.